0: the tutoring below, and I believe that no one and no situation is ever too far gone. Well, hi there. Welcome back to Never Too Far Gone. I'm Heather Chitrangelo and I am a renewalist and I am the creator of Systemic Renewal. This podcast is very new and our Academy of Systemic Renewal is yet to launch. So we're in the really early stages, precious, precious early stages of developing this community that I really believe is going to reach right across nations, cultures, stories, and the many divides that so often fragment us. So I'm really excited for what the future holds for the Academy of Systemic Renewal. But right now, I'm just going to introduce some of the basics of systemic renewal to you uh, in this weekly podcast as we prepare to launch next year. And thank you for being an early adopter and for plugging into this because For whatever reason, in your own story, something about the concept of renewal and of systemic change embracing renewal has resonated with your spirit and with your work. That's probably because you're a renewalist, but we will soon find out. So what is different about systemic renewal? Well, um, as you'll probably know, the landscape of systemic innovation Uh, human-centered design and systems leadership models is growing and expanding and it has um, multidisciplinary reach and it is very diverse. And what we are offering to that space is an approach to leading change that basically says we are in the business of rebuilding broken systems. This approach has two distinctives. First of all, we believe it's okay and it's normal and it's healthy to name things as broken. That brokenness is part of life. Things break. Just the other night we were having dinner and my daughter was getting a glass of milk and dropped it on the floor. And that is fine. That's part of life. And those little breakages through to the big breakages – are just a part of doing life together. They're a part of any system. So we name it, we call it. um, We call out the brokenness that matters and the brokenness that's painful. And the second part is we believe that nothing and no one is ever too far gone, hence the name of this podcast. So broken is part of the rebuilding process. The rebuilding process is ongoing. And systemic renewal is really an evidence-based methodology around how we actually facilitate and lead that process for whole communities, whole organisations, even whole sectors. What I want to get into today in this podcast, which I'm calling the mountain, the table, the green room and the stage, is just a, uh, an overview basically of our four what I call modes of leadership and there are four methods embedded in each of those, and just start to introduce those, and in the next four weeks, I'm going to also unpack them a little more. So before I get into introducing and walking us through those four modes today, uh, I just wanna speak to the question, what do I mean by broken? And just kind of draw out some illustrations there for you. So um, when something's broken, Uh, It might be fundamentally broken beyond, you know, in a way that seems it's got to be completely opened up, there has to be surgery, and then it has to be completely repurposed. But it can also just mean that a part of the system has become broken, which simply means it's not working anymore in the way that it was designed to, or perhaps it never has really worked in the way it was designed to. So, some examples the global economy is broken isn't it? It needs mending and fast before 2050. So there are thousands of people working hard on creating mechanisms and pathways, technologies and strategies for that transition to a regenerative economy to happen fast. Uh, Other examples, institutional failures and moral failures that happen by key leaders in organisations can also lead to broken trust and damage to reputation uh, that can last for years. Election promises are broken often, aren't they? Uh, sudden economic downturn or unexpected interference through due to environmental factors might lead to job losses, um, major strategic changes, redundancies, and depleted morale. We might be in a system that's very overscheduled, under-resourced, where staff are experiencing high degrees of stress and burnout rates. Uh, We may be in an environment where there seems to be a constant state of turnover, staff don't stay, and the reasons never really get diagnosed or addressed. Maybe there are key targets in our sector or in the environment we're in that just year in, year out, never get met. Perhaps the most vulnerable members of our community are being overlooked, you know, the housing crisis comes to mind as an example. So these are the kinds of things that I mean when I say brokenness. So when we are people that are in the business of rebuilding broken systems, I call it the work of systemic renewal, I call people who are gifted and inclined to this kind of leadership of leading change from within broken systems, renewalists, Um, It's something that I know I've always been. Uh, There are four kind of different modes of leadership that we tend to move in and out of in that work. And what I've drawn out from my research is a methodology, if you like, that embraces these four methods, describes them and helps us to build a discipline around them, moving in and out in a really healthy, balanced flow. And we will even practice it in the Academy of Systemic Renewal in the space of a day. So one of the theories that have come out of my work is that as important as strategy is and having clear strategic approaches to leading change, which we have four that we promote and practice uh, in this discipline. As important as these are, the modes of leadership that we operate in are as important And getting really healthy disciplines and intentionality around these modes, which is the different ways that we're interacting with our environment and the different ways that we're leading, is as critical as strategy. So the modes that I'm about to describe, I call them the mountain, the table, the green room, and the stage, are what I've observed really effective change leaders embrace and move in and out of really effectively. So, the first is the mountain. The mountain is a place of solitude. It's a place of rest. It's a place of recovery. But most importantly, it's a place of intentional experiential reflective practice. So, it's where we, what I call in terms of our methods, it's where we get the story. The mountain is a place or a practice That we put into our week and into our months and into our years where we withdraw from our usual environment to pay attention, to notice and to reflect on the data that we've been able to gather in the field and to begin to draw the dots and notice the most important dynamics that are at play in terms of the underlying mindsets or narratives that are shaping our environment and also that are shaping ourselves and how we're interacting with that environment. So the mountain might be an actual literal physical mountain, but it really could be just a cafe or the local park. It could even be your favourite chair in your house, potentially. Uh, It's about a practice of putting pause on the usual roles that we play the usual pressures we're under and the usual environment we inhabit. It's different to going on a holiday. Holidays are really for fun, relaxation. Yes, there might be some reflection in there, but holidays are mostly about celebrating life, resting and relationship building. Going to the place of solitude for intentional reflection can in fact be very hard work and it might be the most important work we do in the space of a year. in the space of a week. Mountaintops are places where we have the most important realisations that shape the very best work that we do, do. And many leaders who claim to be in the work of changing the world or leading systems change don't even practice this intentionally. And it's a big gap, it's a big mistake. So for me, it was literally on a mountain in Switzerland at the Coe Palace, which is one of the sites where we'll be leading this program and leading retreats uh, moving ahead. It was uh, it was a place where I had one of the most important realizations of my life that has led to me doing this research and doing this work at all. A defining moment uh, that happened for me on that mountain, which is shaping. The way that I'm approaching the rest of my life uh, took place when I withdrew from my usual pressures and usual roles and usual distractions for long enough to really see who it was that I needed to be and uh, this this renewalist, but most importantly, someone who was going to start a movement that doesn't exist yet. Someone who was going to be the leader, the CEO of my own company. And for me at the time, and this was a few years ago now, that was absolutely, utterly terrifying to to look at. And I remember literally standing on the side of a mountain and just speaking out the words, I'm scared, and really crying out, in fear. I'm scared to do that. Why was I scared? The mountain was the place where I faced that fear and I started the process of listening to my story, my heart and the reasons why I was afraid and I began to unpack the ways that I'd created certain boundaries, certain narratives, certain uh, understandings around who I was, what I was capable of, what it means to be a woman, what roles women should inhabit, and how I had used these narratives as strategies to protect myself from feeling too exposed. Why? Because of unresolved trauma in my story and my fear of being seen and known and maybe not accepted by others. Had I not spent time in that mode, I wouldn't be doing this. So the mountain's important, but it's only one of four modes. So, you know, you don't want to spend your whole life reflecting. There has to be doing as well, right? Absolutely. And it's all about keeping it in a really healthy rhythm and a really healthy balance. So after the mountain, we have what I call the table. And the table is really in terms of pedagogy. It's it's where we gather what's called a community of practice. It's the place where we methodologically, we design what I call the right medicine. We design solutions that are going to start to really shift and transform the system. And we have to do that not from a place of solitude, but actually from a place of deep collaboration of bringing together diverse perspectives and skills and co-creating really effectively and using the science that we know around how that happens, how we can facilitate really creative and collaborative and safe environments for a very targeted teamwork that isn't wasteful. So the table is that place of collaboration, maybe of friendship, of building trust, It's the place where vision, real vision that people actually want to buy into is formed. And most importantly, it's the place where we allow ourselves to be changed by others and we allow ourselves to become part of a process that's bigger than us. And one of the really important things that happens at the table, as with any family gathering, for example, is that we find ourselves sharing space with people who really rub us the wrong way and who we find really annoying. And that is a critical part of the experience as well. People who annoy us, who are different to us, uh, who trigger things in us uh, that are painful or frustrating or difficult, are always a gift to us and to the process. And if we don't come to the table, if we avoid those kind of experiences, we never really step into the most effective leadership we can. So, you know, I was thinking back to over 10 years ago now in my own story when I was very new to leadership in the church and I was newly ordained and I I became part of a cohort that gathered four times a year uh, as a national group and then monthly as a state group to develop as leaders and we were part of this leadership development program and so I found myself in a room full of people from around Australia who were leading in a whole range of different contexts and very powerful, uh, very strong personalities in the room And I found some of those people really hard to be around and really hard to share space with. And the people that I found the hardest were usually people who I would describe as fitting in to the system really well. So they were men and women who were inhabiting roles that were very um, established, that had – a lot of tradition or experience behind them and they were flourishing in those roles and they just fit the culture and they loved what they did. And as I spent time with this feeling, I realised gradually that the reason this irritated me was because that wasn't me. Um, You know, that I had more of a pioneering kind of calling, that I'm someone who's always been outside the box, who's always, you know looking at what could be done differently, what could be new, Um, I don't settle into roles that are already very understood and very established. And that often has come in my life with a feeling of not really belonging, not really fitting in. And that was getting really triggered in in this environment. I remember on the last day of one of our weekly intensives, We did this exercise where we had a map of Australia, a very large map of Australia sitting in front of us, and we were all sitting around it in a circle. And we had to um, place ourselves on the map kind of metaphorically and to think about um, kind of the landscape of this nation and the land itself as kind of a metaphor for, I guess, where we saw ourselves positioned in the landscape of leadership that we found ourselves in and I remember getting up and saying to the group it was a really important moment for me um, that I was going to position myself in Tasmania which is an island separate from the mainland. Tasmania is small, Tasmania is separate from uh, the main landscape of uh, that's that's known as this nation and Sometimes Tasmania gets forgotten and often Tasmania gets ridiculed. You know, that's kind of part of our national sense of humour. And I found myself saying to the group, I'm outside the box. I'm different. I don't fit in. But I'm still part of the map. And I've realised in my time with you that it's okay for me to be that person and it's okay for others to not be that person. So that's the table. The table is such a critical mode. It's not only a place of self-discovery but it's really a place of creative collaboration and when it works well problems get identified and solved really accurately and even really quickly. The third mode is what I call the green room. The green room is a term that I came up with in the last couple of years and it's actually a term that I use to describe a relationship group in our lives. So in our lives we have a whole range of different kinds of relationships, uh, friendships and family relationships and colleagues and they have different levels of intimacy and they operate um, in different ways the green room is what I call the space right at the center of my life, where there is the deepest intimacy and where there is the greatest trust. The green room is a small space with only a few people in it who are my most trusted uh, family and friends. So I think of it as the green room because the green room is a place where Performers wait before they go on stage, and where they they exit off stage and they go back to the green room. And it's often a place where their closest family, or supporters, or friends, will wait with them. So I think of the green room as that place that you go to to prepare for a performance, and it's also the place that you go to immediately to recover from a performance. And it has to be a place of safety and love, uh, where you can be brave and do your most creative preparation. And so to know who's in your green room, I say, who do you want to see right before you're about to do a performance? And who do you want to see right after a performance that's gone very well or a performance that's gone very badly that you're not feeling great about? Who can hold you in both moments of disappointment and celebration? Who can love you in your success and your failure? These are your closest friends, your soul friends, the most important people in your circle. And the green room is a place where we can know safety and love in relationship enough to really grow into our bravest selves and do our best preparation for the performances that we're going to do in the world that are going to lead to change. So this mode is really important as well. You know, I was thinking about my daughter, and how one of the she's nine years old, and one of the places that she performs regularly in now is her swimming pool, because she loves swimming. And she's been uh, training a lot for swimming. And she's also done a little bit of Competing this year. And in the space of this year, you know, I've been that person on the side of the swimming pool who has been there for a cuddle when she's been disappointed with her performance, when she's felt overwhelmed, like it's too hard and she's needed to take a little break and have a little cry. And I've also been there when she's come up to me with a blue ribbon. And both roles are so important. And both experiences are part of what it looks like to lead change. We're going to have blue ribbon days. We're going to have overwhelmed days. And knowing who those people are who can hold us in love and believe in us in both is really critical. So I'm going to give a little shout out to my green room right now. It's a small group of people. They know who they are. But I want to especially mention my best friend, Tom, who really is the reason that I'm doing this work and this podcast at all, because he was the first person to really believe in me and encourage me to step outside of the context that I've been in for many years and begin to brave bringing this to a broader audience. So thank you, Tom. So the fourth and final mode that I want to share with you now is the stage. And the stage is as important as those other places. It's the place where we perform and we inject what I call the right medicine into the system. It may not be a public speaking or a performance space in terms of an actual stage, although uh, for change leaders, that's often part of what we do. But a stage is simply a platform where we present and perform and in a sense really demonstrate or actualise the new narratives that are going to renew the old, which we've discerned and worked out in those other modes that I've mentioned. So it might be in written format. It might be on social media. It might be through video. It might be sitting in a meeting. It might be in particular strategic conversations. It might be over a dinner that's really about networking um, in the context of a conference. It might be training or presentations that you're doing in front of your team or in front of a broader audience. But these are simply platforms where people see your work. And on these platforms, we inject these renewed narratives in very symbolic and relational ways, but also in very technical, strategic ways that lead to basically accessing and beginning to shift those key leverage points for change around structure and design as well. So these are the four modes, the mountain, the table, the green room and the stage. There is incredible power in using our platforms differently to the way that they've been characteristically used and there's incredible power in using them creatively and performatively and there's also power in creating platforms that are new that haven't existed before. So this fourth area, the stage, is one of the most powerful, fun, critical areas. I can remember doing a presentation to all of the staff at a university college that I worked at for four years with international students. And it was one of my first presentations to this group of people. And the role that I was in, which was about community development, student well-being, was one that hadn't had a huge amount of trust attached to it historically, um, although there had been some mixed experience in there. And I remember using that platform on the very first day that I was in front of this group of people to introduce myself, to share a little of my vision and my story, but I did something very different that day where I paused and I I used a story and some symbol that I put onto the screen to ask the staff's permission to include me in their team. And I basically named the truth that these roles can never be forced just because someone's employed and paid to work in a place. The kind of role I was in only works with permission to collaborate, permission to be a part of the team. And even if that can't happen straight away, I'm putting my hand out openly to ask, can I have your permission? And I do remember at the end of that talk, a resounding yes. People actually shouted, you know, in unison, this yes, because I offered the question instead of assuming it. So platforms and how we use them can be real turning points in any system. And when they're used badly, that can be damaging too. So let's move to a time of reflection now. I have three reflection points. And let me guide you through three areas of reflection that relate to the table, the green room and the stage. Your mountain is what you're doing already by listening to this podcast and taking this time to think and reflect. So let's move first to the table. Who do you have to work with right now? Who you find really annoying to be around? What conflict inside of you is this person prompting? And what opportunity for growth waits for you in this experience? The next question is, who is in your green room? Who do you want to see straight after a bad performance and straight after a good performance? How recently have you told this person that you love them? lastly, the stage. What platforms are available to you right now to be heard and to influence change? Could you list them? There might be more than you realise. Could you put a star next to the most valuable and then against the most underused platform and see what you notice? The Academy of Systemic Renewal is based in Melbourne, and so we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay respects to elders past, present and emerging.